welcome to Sedaris. My name is Dave. I am one of the pastors here. Really glad that you're here. Happy Mother's Day to all you mothers out there. From whatever town you come from, Happy Mother's Day. We are very glad that you're here. Some people flew in from across the country to be with us tonight, so we're really excited about that. Um, I know that this can be an exciting uh, day for some and a hard day for others, those of us who maybe have lost mothers. and Just know that, that wherever you're at, uh, our hearts are with you and, and with your mothers. and um, We hope that Sedaris could become a part of your family as well. So, so glad that you're here. Really excited about what the Lord has to share tonight. Um, we're in this series called Heaven, and we've put heaven in quotation marks because I think for many of us, we're not sure what heaven is. And maybe we've been taught something false about the promises of heaven. And so we've been spending the last few weeks, and we've got a couple more weeks, to get clear about what is heaven? What is this promise of heaven. So we're going to be back in that series tonight. Very glad that you're here. In 1952, there was a young woman named Florence Chadwick. She stepped into the waters off the Pacific Ocean, off Catalina Island, determined to swim to shore to mainland California. She'd already been the first woman to swim the English Channel, both directions, and on that day in 1952 in California. The weather was foggy, it was chilly, she could hardly see the boats that were accompanying her along her journey, and yet she swam for 15 hours. Uh, Along the way, she begged to be taken out of the water, but her mother was in the boat with her, and she was encouraging her, saying, you can make it. Finally, however, Physically, emotionally exhausted, Florence got into her lifeboat, and when she did, she discovered that the shore was less than a half a mile away. Fifteen hours she had waited, and the shore was half a mile away. Uh, When she discovered this, of course, she was a bit heartbroken at a news conference the next day. This is what she, what she said, All I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Uh, consider her words with me for a second. If I, if I could have seen the shore, I could have made it. Uh, for believers, that shore is Jesus being with Him in a real place that He has promised to prepare for us. Last week we discussed what that place will be like. It's a real, physical, beautiful place and we'll live there with Jesus forever. The shore that we should be looking for, as we said last week, is the new resurrected earth. It's not just spirits and clouds. It's a real resurrected earth new earth. And if we could just see it a little bit better, if we could just see through the fog, then maybe, maybe, 
maybe we could keep going. Maybe we'd have the energy. Maybe we'd have the courage to keep persevering and do this life God's way. Do this life a little bit longer in the way of holiness, the way of righteousness, in the way that brings glory to God's name. If we could just with our mind's eye picture the shore. One of the huge pressures that distracts us and diverts us from this good end is is this constant ticking of time. Over and over, we feel that pressure. And we say something like this, if I've been swimming for 15 hours, how much longer must I swim? And when we, when we say that, what we're really asking is the question, when? When, O oh Lord, does heaven come? When we're fighting that temptation to that habitual sin that keeps creeping back, we're crying out to God, when, O oh Lord, will I get reprieve? When we're fighting loneliness, we cry out, when, O oh Lord, will that heavenly man or woman come into my life? Maybe we long to be a father or a mother. When, O oh Lord? This world is diseased, it's corrupt, it's evil. When, O oh Lord, will You come and restore it? When will we reach the shores of heaven? Today I'm going to try to answer that question. When is heaven? And as we both experience and wait for heaven... And, and dream upon, think upon, imagine the promises of heaven, I think by understanding the when a little bit better, it will give us energy to live life well right now and hopefully experience heaven even now. So as we turn, turn to this new question, we, we need to understand that it's a somewhat complex answer and it will affect the enjoyment that we have in this life. It will affect our witness to the watching world. Human beings have always been fascinated with time, with prediction, and the haunting reality that our days are fleeting. My hope is that this sermon tonight might clear up some things for you that tend to maybe hold you back from living heaven's life right now. So, let me just say this up front. In the choppy waters of life, a common biblical refrain, and I'll just add a godly, proper refrain that we have always said as God's people and should always say is this, come now, Lord Jesus. Bring heaven now. There's nothing wrong with crying that out. But you just have to know that that God's response will always go something like this. Here, here's a little heaven now. But He'll also say, but you have to wait for the rest later my beloved child. So here we go. We're going to look at the three whens of heaven. Three whens. Amazing how preachers everywhere always come up with three. I think it's a God thing. Here we go. Ready? Each of these whens relates to this one realization about what heaven is. We talked about this last week and uh, the first week of the series as well. You could say this about heaven. Heaven equals the place 
of the presence of God. If you sort of think about heaven like that, heaven equals the place of the presence of God. With this definition, we can distinguish these three whens, okay? We have one, life now. We call this the church age. Then we have life after death. We call that intermediate heaven. And then we have life after life after death. We'll call that eternal heaven or the new earth. So this first when, life now, I want to turn your attention to John chapter 14. And we're going to have the Scripture up there today because we're going to be bouncing around a little bit. John chapter 14. Just kind of follow along with me here. If you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. This is the first when. Call this the church age. And Jesus said, I must go so that I can send you the Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit who right now in each and every follower of Jesus who has been regenerated by the Spirit now lives. His presence is now with us. So you see how heaven is with us. Even right now. Because the presence of God through the Holy Spirit is with us. Now it's important to remember that generally heaven and earth are not detached. In fact, the things that we love about this life are a foretaste of the life to come. A foretaste of heaven. So, what we love about this life are the things that resonate with the life we were made for. The things that we love are not merely the best that this life has to offer, but they're little previews of the greater life to come. So it's not wrong to say that I dream of this earth rightly ordered, without sin, without suffering, without crime, without death. That is dreaming of heaven. A world in which God is rightly praised and glorified, revered and awed, that is this life. Remade. That's a proper longing for heaven. It's not detached from this earth. It's not completely other, like we talked about last week. It's similar and it's dissimilar. That's why we can experience heaven right now. In this life, in this room, at home, we walk down the street, as we go on a hike, we can experience heaven now. Hope that's good news. It's not all waiting. We experience, once we have experienced the Spirit of God, we experience heaven right now. We start eternity from the moment we accept Jesus. Praise be to God. When number two, life after death. Call this the intermediate heaven. This often is what we think about when we think about heaven. Although it's an incomplete picture. But we're often talking about the intermediate heaven. Luke 23 says this, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Him. This is speaking of Jesus' crucifixion. One of the criminals who was hanging railed at Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same wrath? And we indeed 
justly receive the due reward for our deeds. But this man, pointing at Jesus, has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I don't know if you've heard that story, but it's one of the most amazing promises of all Scripture. If you don't understand how grace works, you look at the story of the thief on the cross. He didn't have time to turn his life completely around. He had but moments, hours maybe, to repent of his sin, to cry out to Jesus, to recognize Him as His Savior. And Jesus promises, today I will see you in paradise. Let me look at another passage of Scripture. Philippians chapter 1 says this, This is Paul, the Apostle Paul speaking. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. This is the Apostle Paul wrestling with staying on earth, doing the mission of God, proclaiming the Gospel, seeing people come to faith in Jesus, but he knows that it's far better to go and this day be with Jesus. One more. This is 1 Thessalonians 4.3. This is also the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Thessalonica. He says this, "...but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. You see, each of these passages is telling us something about intermediate heaven. The second when. When does this when happen? Immediately after death. Immediately. There's no waiting. Jesus says today. Is it better or worse than life now? It's a good question. I think that it's clear from the things that Paul says, particularly in Philippians, that it is far better because you get to be in the immediate presence of Jesus. Now Jesus is with us through the Spirit, but to be with Him face to face is far better. Well, in this intermediate heaven, are we conscious or are we asleep? You see, the Bible, as we read, talks about those who have fallen asleep. And he's speaking of the intermediate state. This intermediate heaven, as I'm calling it. But he's using that term, fallen asleep, as a euphemism for death. Because what he's trying to say is, it's like they're sleeping. Not that they're gone forever. Not that they're lost forever. In a sense, yes, they're sleeping Their life on earth is asleep, but they are not lost. They will wake up again as all those who sleep do. And so in that sense, though they are asleep to us, they are alive to God. Isn't that a great promise? They are with Him now in a place, what we call heaven, it's the intermediate heaven. Waiting, expecting life after life after death. So maybe this is helpful for you. You could say, 
that their physical earthly bodies sleep, in a sense, while their spiritual bodies relocate to this place called heaven. This is very much a conscious existence. We see that again and again in these passages that talk about people in heaven right now, singing, conversing, glorifying God, doing things. So, what are they doing? Let's, let's answer a few more questions about this second when, this intermediate heaven. Is it a place? Is it spatial? And sometimes we have this idea of intermediate heaven as, as this sort of spaceless place, mind sort of conscious in a way. I don't think that's the right way to think about it. I think it is a real place. It's a very real spatial dimension. However, it's not exactly the same as what we experience here. It's not the exact same dimension. What I mean by this is you can't travel there if we were to just sort of invent a fast enough spaceship. It's not like if we go far enough, we can we knew which turns to take that we could somehow find heaven on our own. Scripture talks about it as this different dimension. Calls it an angelic realm. But I don't think it's just a spiritual realm. I think it's spatial. I think you can be closer or further from certain things. For instance, the altar of God. The temple. You can come and you can go from places and different spaces I can go from here to there. I think one of the best ways to try to understand this is the ascension of Jesus. N.T. Wright helps a lot here in his book, Surprised by Hope. One of the important things uh, that Christians, and, and if you're not yet a Christian, that you need to realize about what the Bible teaches about Jesus' life is that after His death, died on a cross, was buried in the grave. On the third day, He rose again, proving that sin and death had been conquered. But He didn't stick around and die of old age. He stuck around for several days, appeared to many, but He didn't stay around forever. Instead, what we learn as we read Scripture, we read the Gospels, took His disciples, went up what was probably something of a hill, call it a mountain. It's kind of like if you're from Texas. You have great mountains in Texas. It's like walking up Queen Anne. So that's more what it's like. And he gets to the top, gives them a little speech. We know it as the Great Commission. Go into all the nations and baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then it says he ascended into heaven. Where did he go? He went to the intermediate heaven. Which cannot be ignored, but is often misunderstood. Some people will say things like the resurrection and the ascension were the same thing. Like when Jesus rose, it was the same as Him ascending into heaven. That's not true. It's clear that those are two separate historical events. Rising, people ate with Him, touched Him, talked to Him, and then at another moment, He ascended into heaven. These are two distinct historical facts. He had a real, physical, resurrection body. He was not just a spirit. And so when He ascended into heaven, guess what went with Him? His real, physical, resurrected body. 
And he's not rocketing into the sky. He's going to this other dimension, which we call heaven. Again, a mystery. How does this happen? It's a mystery. But we know that angels come from this dimension to come and aid God's people. And in the same way, Jesus ascends and goes to the intermediate heaven. This is the correct theology of the ascension. And it teaches us many important things about this particular when of heaven. First, it says this, Current heaven and current earth are not two different locations on the same space-time-matter continuum. But heaven and earth, as they are, are different dimensions of God's good creation. Heaven relates to earth. Again, this is from N.T. Wright, so you can believe it (laughs) for the most part. Now, tangentially, so that the one who is in heaven can be present simultaneously anywhere and everywhere on earth. Therefore, this means that Jesus is available, accessible, without people having to travel to a particular spot on the earth to find Him. Does that make sense? What he's saying is it's not Jesus is not so far away in this distant land called heaven. Somehow, heaven and earth are almost like right on top of each other. And so, when the Bible says things, like for instance, that all authority has been given to Jesus in heaven and on earth, it's not lying. Because Jesus is not somehow so far away, He's somehow right there, though in heaven. Again, a mystery. The Scripture is very clear about this mystery. So you could think of it like this. Heaven is like the control room for earth. It's like the CEO's office. It's a place from which instructions are given. Angels are sent out. The Spirit comes and goes knowing the Father and the Son sent to those whom love Jesus. So you ask, is this dimension a real physical place? The idea of the human Jesus now being in heaven with His physical body, His resurrected body, being fully embodied. I'll say it a couple times as it sinks in. This probably comes as a shock to many Christians and many non-Christians alike. N.T. Wright says this, sometimes so many people think that Jesus, having been divine, stopped being divine and became a human, and then, having been human for a while, stopped being human and went back to being divine. And that's just not true. That's not how it happens. Jesus is still, right now, fully divine and fully human. That's how He can be our great mediator. And He's got His body. And He's in this intermediate heaven. So what's that mean? See, our culture used to have, and you might have this, I had this. I'm learning a lot from the series. I used to you know, think of heaven as this only spiritual, non-material reality. And so this idea of a solid human body being present, it just sort of blows up that idea, right? The ascension of Jesus actually helps us rethink what heaven is even now in the intermediate state. Most theologians have sort of historically sort of bought into this platonic idea of the body matter is bad and spirit is good, and so why would we take 
any physicality with us. And Randy Alcorn, a guy who's written a book called Heaven, which is a great book. I'd recommend it to you if you have more questions about this sort of thing. He's not so sure about this idea of no physicality in heaven. And he tells us to look again at Jesus' promise to the thief on the cross. And what does he say? He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now what's interesting is this word paradise he he uses is actually the same word that the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses to talk about the Garden of Eden. And of course the Garden of Eden was a very real place. With real physicality. And what happens if, you if you've read the story of Genesis, only you have to get three chapters into the Bible before humans mess up this perfect paradise. But God, because He cannot be in the presence of evil, has to kick Adam and Eve out of paradise, the garden. And I think Jesus is purposefully using this word to remind us and remind this Jewish thief that that is where he would be. In a place that was at least very much like the garden. Very much like paradise. Where he himself would be. It's a powerful, powerful word that Jesus uses. Now I think he's speaking, as often Scripture does, about two things at once. Obviously, the new heavens and the new earth will be paradise. But I think even now, the intermediate heaven is somehow, in some way, also like the garden. And so, if it's like the garden, it must have some similar elements to physicality. It won't just be an idea. It won't be just minds floating around, spirits undifferentiated. I think we'll be able to see people, recognize them. Scripture says we'll have clothes They might not be the same as these clothes. Hopefully not. I have a button missing. Fully buttoned. But there'll be space. You'll have your own personal space. Real places. Real spaces. And maybe this is some third kind of physical, spiritual reality that's totally distinct to the intermediate heaven. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it'll be different from both this life and the new heavens and the new earth. For myself, as I studied this, I had something of a change of perspective. I'm thinking now a little bit differently about this intermediate heaven. I think it'll be more like physical than I had previously thought. At least Jesus Himself will be fully physical in this new place. But, alas, the best answer is, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Let me just make a quick note here about um, purgatory. Some of you might have been raised uh, hearing about purgatory, which is this space between death and heaven where you have to purge yourself of sin. And depending on how good or bad you've been in this life, depends on how long it takes to work your way out of purgatory. I'm not say, I'm not, I'm not, what I'm going to say next is not meant to uh, be hurtful or um, derogatory in any way. It's just meant to tell you what I think the Bible says. And I don't see anywhere in the Bible um, that talks about one group going straight to heaven while another goes to a place of purification for sin. All those, I think, who trust in Jesus by faith 
that trusted Him for the forgiveness of sin, that believed that on the cross He died for them, will experience, have already received the free gift of grace. And I believe they'll go immediately to the intermediate heaven. No pit stop. No purgatory. The only thing that you might say to distinguish groups is that there's the first group who will have a glorious arrival and maybe a second group who, like the thief on the cross, made it by the skin of their teeth. <laughs> but that's all we can say. The same reward, the same place. And it's 1 Corinthians 3, if you want to look this up, where um, a lot of theologians who teach purgatory will, will go. But I think actually the idea, or the reason that they come to this, is, is that the passage has been taken in the wrong way. It's a serious passage that talks about the purifying flames, but I don't think it's talking about a difference in status or heavenly geography. I don't believe there's different levels of heaven. Um, none of that stuff. I think it's just talking about wanting to live this life as purely as possible because heaven starts right now. Now here's the great thing. Maybe you've believed in purgatory. Maybe you know people who believed in purgatory. Here's what I think. They're going to get one of the best surprises <laughs> that you could possibly think of when they die. And they're going to go right into the presence of Jesus. So, that's exciting. Now to the third when. This is life after life after death. Life after life after death. We call this the eternal heaven. When is life after life after death coming? Um, this is a question that has circled throughout the church ever since the beginning of the church in first century Jerusalem. They were talking about this. When is Jesus coming back? When is He coming back? Because He has promised, I'm coming back and I'll establish My kingdom. And people have thought about this and talked about this. Here's what I want to say about this. It's not wrong, I think, to wonder when, when's this going to happen? But I do think that it's unhealthy to try to predict. I think it's wrong to wonder, but unhealthy to try to predict. Paul said this much to the church in Thessalonica. He said this, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them and and as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Here's what he's saying. We don't know. Just like a pregnant woman doesn't know when that labor is going to hit. We don't know. But a day is coming. This is important. There is the day of the Lord. It is a specific day. It is a specific when. It is not some gradual improvement because humanity figures it out. There is a day that is coming when Jesus Himself will return to this earth in the same way that He left, He will come back 
from the intermediate heaven into this earth, and he will begin judgment and reconciliation of this world, ushering in the new earth and life after life after death. N.T. Wright says it like this, when Jesus appears, final redemption will be the moment when heaven and earth are joined together at last in a burst of God's creative energy for which Easter is the prototype and source. Then he continues, what do we get at this second coming but the personal presence of Jesus as opposed to the current absence? Jesus appearing will be for those of us who have known and loved Him here like meeting face to face someone we only have known by letter, telephone, or maybe email. Isn't that a great picture? We're meeting them face to face. We've only dated long distance and now we're in the same place. And we're moving into the same home because we are united forever. So this final when, this third when, it will be the last when. Life after life after death is, is now everlasting. In fact, I think everlasting is probably even a better, less confusing term than we often use, which is eternal. Everlasting is probably a better description. In fact, that's probably why in the Apostles' Creed, one of the very first creeds of the early church, they said this, the forgiveness of, we believe in the forgiveness of sin, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. We will not become eternal as God is eternal, but we will experience the eternal life of God as we are in Him and He is in us, fully unfiltered, no more long distance. It will be a fully human experience, but it will be everlasting. So let me summarize these three whens in this way. And you get to understand, they get progressively better, okay? Life now is what I would call embodiment and physicality, but only the partial presence of God through the Holy Spirit. So it's very right to cry out, to hope for more. This is why Jesus teaches us to pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is our prayer. We cry out that God would bring more and more of heaven to this earth. Life after death. This is the full presence of the triune God, but only partial embodiment and physicality. So, this is why you see again and again in Scripture people in heaven, the intermediate heaven, crying out, hoping for God to bring more of heaven. Look at this. In Revelation 8, 9-11, to it says this. This is the Apostle John who has a vision of intermediate heaven. He says this, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the Word of God, and for the witness they had borne, they cried out with a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. God says, wait. I've got more work to do. More people to bring into the family. The final stage can be summarized like this. And I hope you're seeing the theme. This is life after life after death. This is the best. This is the full presence of God and full physicality 
and embodiment in the new earth. And like I said last week, which means there's no need for hope. There's no need to cry out because God has given us everything and more that we could ever hope for. Full presence, full physicality. Life after life after death. I heard this quote this week. Um, Grief is just love with nowhere to go. Unless we give it to God, only He can deliver. I think this is what life after life after death will be like. Grief will be gone because we will not have love that has nowhere to go. Now to close here, I want to I wanna make a, a brief comment about time. Okay? Brief comment about time. It's been argued for a long time. Is there time in heaven? Peter Kreft says it this way, our dissatisfaction with time is a powerful piece of evidence that we are made for eternity. There is nothing more natural and all pervasive in this world than time. Not only our bodies, but our souls as well are immersed in time. Yet we complain about it. Remember that quote. So is heaven, both intermediate and eternal, timeless? Because it seems like time gives us a lot of trouble. I think the answer is no. I think there is time in heaven. Let me make a few comments about why I think that is. Adam and Eve did not exist before the fall in a timeless world. There was sequence. There was chronology. There was one thing after another. That's time. Then the fall happens and time continues. Jesus, after the resurrection from the dead, did not exist outside of time. In His resurrected body, He was in time. And it was not evil. He existed in time. When we read of the new heavens and the new earth, both in the Old Testament and the new, it says things like this, we will be serving God day and night. Day and night. Sounds like there's time and sequence. The trees of life will be yielding fruit every month. Seems like there's seasons and harvest. From one new moon to the other, from one Sabbath to the other, mankind will bow down before God. See that? Sequence. Time. Succession. Summer and winter, day and night, will not cease. Seasons. But here's a question. Will time be the same? I think it'll be very similar. I think there'll still be sequence, chronology, successive actions. There'll be music. I'm not, I'm not a music theory guy, but to have meter and tempo, and music needs silence, rests. What kind of music would it be if it was just... I mean, I can do that. Maybe I will be a great musician. I can do that. Okay. Then what will change about time? What will change about time? I don't think there'll be any clocks in heaven. I don't think there'll be any clocks. Some of you might have recognized the music when I came in. There's a podcast, very popular, number one podcast, I think, or at least was in America, called S-Town. 
begins as a murder mystery, but then quickly evolves into a character portrait of a bizarre, brilliant, tragic horologist named John B. McLemore. A horologist is someone who studies time, who often fixes clocks, usually old clocks. As the podcast series progresses and you learn more about John B., you realize he's not just one of, but probably the master horologist in North America. And he's living in S-Town, Alabama. He's a very interesting man. And you could imagine that someone that spends his whole life to become a master thinks a lot about time. Thinks about the philosophy and the science of time. And what you come to realize is that John B. has an obsession with time. A passion and an obsession with time. And it has consequences because time has a darker side. Right? Now these are my words. And listening to the series, I came away with this. I think you learn something the more you think about time and realize how time affects people that there is a torment to time. Think about a big test that you've ever taken. Like the SATs, or like me, the CPA exam. And you feel the pressure of time running out. And I I don't think there's many times in my life where I felt as panicked and as unhuman as I did in those tests. When I felt like all the work, all that I've been working for, was running away from me as the clock ticked, ticked away. For most people, this is their general relationship to time on earth. In the S-Town podcast, you learn about the art, the history of timekeeping. And one of the things that he talks about is sundials. You know what sundial is? A circular thing, you put a stick in the ground, and depending on where the sun is, the shadow casts, you can tell time. So the ancients told time. And one of the things John B. teaches, Brian Reed, who is the reporter, is that Sundials always have these little mottos written somewhere. And you've got to look for them, search for them, usually in Latin. And he, he tells us about a few of them. I'm going to read some of them to you. Here's one. Tedious and brief. Most sundial mottos, mottos are always sad like that. Here's another. Life passes like this shadow. Make haste, but slowly. Use the hours. Don't count them. Even as you watch, I'm fleeing. Soon comes night. It's later than you think. The narrator, Brian Reed, recalls that he himself happened upon a sundial in a cemetery one time, and he knew to look for the motto on the sundial because John B. had told him about this, and he found it, and this is what it said in Latin. I did nothing good today. I have lost a day. You see, I think since Genesis chapter 3, the fall of mankind, we began to track time. And the better and better we've come at tracking time, the more power it has gained to haunt us. Brian Reed quotes other horologists, one of which who says this about clocks. He says, since I was a boy, I I relayed the measure of time, realizing that it had something to do with me. And then Reed tries to understand what was this 
horologist talking about, he says this, I think what he was saying is that even as a kid, the clock captured this feeling of time going by, going by, and never coming back. When you think of this reality within this earthly life, our relationship to time is that exactly. Ever fleeing, always running away, never coming back. It should and usually does torment the soul when we stop and get honest about time. I think that's what happened to John B. I think that his intimate relationship with time, I think he understood time, and I think it haunted him. John B. had tattoos all over his body, including one of a sundial on his chest. And the motto he chose reads like this, Each wounds the last kills. Which is referring to time. As in, each minute wounds, the last minute kills. Time's a gift, but it's also a punishment for those of us who know nothing but this earth. Time is only a bad thing, only a punishment when it is scarce. Heaven is a place of space and time but not a place of scarcity. I believe that we will exist in time, in sequence, in succession, with past and present memories from our time on earth and time in heaven, but will we do so with a very little sense of time? We will be very unaware of time because it is not running from us. It is everlasting. We never have to feel again like time is running away from us. That it is limited. And therefore, I don't think we'll account for it. I don't think we'll have clocks. What a glorious reality that will be. I will never be late. I will never miss out. I will never say if I just had a little more time then I might live a worthwhile life. Here's the really good news. Though I believe there will be time in heaven, our relationship to it will be nothing like it is right now. Praise be to God. So when is heaven? When can we start living the heavenly life? When can we start being free from the tyranny of time? Right now. Right now. Then in life after death, then in life after life after death is when we can start living like this. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful that this is not a ticking clock running down as our life runs away from us. As our hope for meaning and significance and purpose flees from us as the day flees from the next day. God, help us to start living right now as though we have everlasting life in Jesus Christ. God, if if we feel haunted by time, if we feel the tyranny of time, if we feel like we'll never have enough, God, maybe it's because we have never trusted in You Maybe we've never accepted the free gift of grace that that Your Son Jesus purchased for us on the cross. 
God, I pray if there's anyone in here tonight that has not received that gift, the gift of everlasting life available in Jesus, that right now, God, they would pray, Father, forgive me. Come now and make me new by Your Spirit. Be with me right now, God. Bring heaven into my life right now through Your Spirit. I trust in You. I fall down at Your knees. I follow You, Jesus. God, if somebody prayed that tonight, I just pray, Lord, that they'd tell somebody that they came with or they'd, or they'd tell me, come and find me, or pray with somebody, God, so that they might know how to start living the when of heaven right now. We pray, Lord Jesus, that You would change us, make us new creations even now. In Your Son's name, Amen.